Thanks, Tim, and uh, welcome to this conclusion of our series on 2 Samuel. Uh, perhaps just before we, we get into the passage, it might be useful to review uh, the overall uh, issues raised in First and Second Samuel, which probably were originally one book. And uh, one of the things we've been noting as we've gone through it is the focus on leadership different principles of leadership, different styles of leadership. For example, the book opens with Israel being judged by the high priest, Eli. He had judged Israel for 40 years. And Eli and his sons, we see them abusing their position of authority their, uh, so that they could indulge themselves. So they were taking the sacrifices that should have been given back to the people and they were eating those themselves, and uh, his, Eli's sons abused uh, their position of influence uh, by being immoral. Then we get Samuel emerging. Samuel was the last judge, the last of that old style of decentralized government, where uh, one judge, uh, rather than a king, was responsible for bringing some order to the nation. And Samuel was really a bridge between the rule by judges and the centralized role of kings. Then we get the first king, who is King Saul. Uh, he seemed to have all the qualities that the people wanted to see in a king. But he ruled by authority. He ruled by control. It's not uncommon for our nations and for organizations to be ruled in that manner. But the problem is <clears throat> that if you rule by authority, any challenge to your authority is a major threat. And so Saul ended up becoming paranoid, hounding anyone who was a threat to his dynasty, and in particular to David. And then uh, the last ruler in the book of Samuel is King David. And he did not rule by authority and by control, but ultimately he, he ruled with the heart of a shepherd. That was how God prepared him, how God commissioned him to be a shepherd of his people Israel. Very different styles of leadership, uh, many of which we see alive and well in our world today. And one of the messages is for anyone who may find themselves in your life in a position of leadership. There are many important lessons in this book which can help you even in the secular world. But since Christians are ultimately being uh, groomed to reign with Christ in the world to come, we need to learn how to govern as God governs. And so that's uh, one of the important messages that came across uh, from the whole book. Now, for tonight's final section, it's from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 8, rather long section to the end of 24, so we'll not read all of it, but let's read a number of extracts. First of all, from chapter 23 of 2 Samuel. And in my version, this is headed, David's mighty warriors or David's mighty men, as it's known in the authorized version. So let's read from verse 8. There are some difficult names, so forgive me for mangling them. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. 
Joseph Bashebes, a Tacumanite, was chief of the three. He raised a spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodai the Ahuite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pass Damon for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. But Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them, but Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the keg of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is, this, is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zeruiah, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Gabziel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. And then there's a list of most of the 30, as they're called. But just look at verse 39, the very end. The last one mentioned is, and Uriah the Hittite. There were 37 in all of David's mighty warriors. And over to chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king 
want to do such a thing. The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men. And down to verse 8. And they had gone through the entire land. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. And that site... Uh, where the angel had stopped uh, destroying the people, became the site, what we call nowadays the Temple Mount, where the temple, Solomon's temple, was built. Now, it's a lengthy passage, a lot of technical details in it, but if you think of chapter 23, there the writer of Samuel is reviewing David's famous soldiers, David's army, when he was a young king. Now, we know it's when he was a young king because uh, it mentions Uriah the Hittite, uh, who was still alive at that time. And uh, whereas in this chapter 24, we have David as an old king. Last week, Jim was uh, reminding us that in this final section of 2 Samuel, where David is ruling as an old king, uh, the writer carefully contrasts David as a young king with David as an old king. And sometimes the contrast and the comparison is not flattering to David as an old king. Jim showed us that picture, of, a poignant picture of an old American soldier looking into a mirror and seeing an image of him as a young soldier. And sometimes when people look back, older people look back on their young days, 
Sometimes they can be satisfied. Sometimes they can be ashamed. Sometimes they can be relieved. And there are many different reactions. And this final passage compares and contrasts one particular aspect of David, and that is his relationship with his army. You'll notice that the, the description in chapter 23 of his soldiers uh, is David's relationship with his army when he was a young king. But in chapter 24, again, he counts the army, and it looks at his relationship with his army as an old king. In chapter 23, we read about David's, the exploits of David's soldiers, the mighty men. Did you notice how many there were? 37. Quite an army, you would say. Or maybe you would say that's not much. But when David, as an old king, counts his army, what was the number? 1.3 million. Okay. 800,000 in the northern part and 500,000 in the southern part. Then we get the story of David's judgment and its outcome. So I just want briefly to go through some of the characters that are mentioned in David, young King David's army, uh, as, because they are heroes, but it does raise the question, the question, who are God's heroes nowadays? So let me just pick out briefly a few of these. We get Eliezer, for instance, who says that he stood his ground when the other Israelites, the, the rest of the army, retreated. But Eliezer refused to retreat. He stood his ground, and he won a great victory. Then we get Shammah, who was defending the food supply. It was a, a field of lentils. Now, I don't know how keen you are on lentils, but they were an important part of the Israelite army, uh, sorry, the Israelite diet. And one, if you want to wipe out a nation, you don't need lots of weapons to do it. You just starve them out. Before the Second World War, Stalin used famine to kill an estimated 9 million people in Ukraine. Famine, uh, human-imposed famine, human-created famine, is a weapon of mass destruction. And that's what the Philistines and other enemies often tried to do with Israel. Rather than defeating the army, they just wanted to destroy the crops. You notice also that another incident, it was at harvest time that the Philistines invaded the land, again, to destroy the food supply. And Shammah stood in the field to protect and to defend the crop, the lentils. That's, it says he defended it the field of lentils, because defending the food supply was crucial. Then we get this group called the Three, who, when they heard that David almost uh, reminiscing about how, when he was young, he loved to drink from the well at Bethlehem, and they thought, well, we'll get him another drink of that. So they broke through the Philistines who were encircling them, got water from the well, broke through the Philistine lines again a second time and escaped them and came and brought the water to David. David hadn't asked them to do that. But they were so loyal to David, they were so motivated to please David as their commander that they acted without command. Then we get Benaiah, a fascinating character. You notice that before the mention of Benaiah, 
the, uh, most of the accomplishments and exploits of the warriors up to that point are measured in terms of the numbers of enemies that they killed, 800, 200, and so on. But it's the hundreds of enemies, the number of enemies that they overcame. But in Benaiah's case, he only is overcame four enemies, one of which was a lion. So it's not the numbers that he defeated, but the strength of the enemies that he faced and that he defeated. For example, it says two of the two top Moabite warriors. Now, if you're not familiar with Moabite, the Moabite soldiers and army, uh, maybe I could just fill in a few of the details. The Moabites, uh, we read about them in the book of Judges, uh, not too long before this time. And there, the Moabite soldiers are described as fat. Their commander, Eglon, is described as a very fat man. So the Moabite uh, soldiers were like sumo wrestlers. That's the sort of image I get. Not lazy, really strong, very hard to overcome. If you like, the picture, the epitome of natural human flesh, natural human strength. Really strong enemies. So not the number of enemies, but the strength of them. Then there's this lion in a pit on a snowy day. And it says that Benaiah went down into the pit. Now, if I saw a lion in a pit on a snowy day, I would quietly walk past it. Because what, what's the point of going down into a pit where the lion was trapped? What's the point of killing a lion when it was already trapped in a pit on a snowy day? Well, the danger is that someone else coming along, less observant than Benaiah, would also fall into the pit. And if there was a conflict between a lion and an ordinary human being in a pit on a snowy day, you know who would win. And so Benaiah's interest and motivation here was not because he fell into the pit, but it was to protect other people from the lion and to protect them from being savaged and falling into the trap. So that was part of his motivation, to protect other people when he could easily have saved himself but he took on this enemy, the lion, and uh, somehow overcame it. But it was to protect other people who might have fallen into a trap. And then, lastly, there's the Egyptian. You notice described as a huge Egyptian. Again, emphasizing the strength and power. Egypt at this time was a ruling power. They were the superpower for this whole region. They were sophisticated. This man was a man of the world. And Egypt often is a picture of this world's system that controls people's thinking. And Benaiah tackled this sophisticated, huge Egyptian, like taking on the ideology of the world that we live in. So we get Benaiah tackling these three enemies. One was like a picture, epitome of human strength, human flesh, is sometimes called in scripture. We get the lion, and we know that the lion, the roaring lion, is often a picture of the devil, uh, his tactics. And then we get the Egyptian, who is like a, a symbol of the world system that seeks to control people's thinking. If I could put it in any other order, the three enemies were the flesh, or the world, the flesh, and the devil. <laughs> in a way, pictures of that. 
So let's just uh, end this section with a few uh, simple and obvious lessons. And I just wanted to prompt your thinking by saying, if God has a list of his warriors, spiritual warriors, in our generation, who would be on it? Would you be on it? Who do you think might be on it? Just thinking of Eliezer, who stood his ground. Many in Christendom have been intimidated by the ideologies of the world around us, even um, uh, church so-called leaders. And they have run away from the pressure and from the criticism that they would face if they stuck to the scriptural position on so many issues. Also, there are many Christians who are suffering from intimidation and persecution in the world, uh, in other countries where it would be so easy just to run away and not to take your stand as a Christian. And yet, many of them take their stand as a Christian and have lost their lives as a result. So there are heroes in our world today. There are those who, uh, in Christendom who refuse to be intimidated. They stand their ground even if they get excluded, even if their career suffers drastically as a result. What about defending the food supply? Like um, Shama, who fought to maintain the, uh, the feeding, the spiritual, well, the feeding of Israel. The, word, the, the food supply for God's people today is the word of God. And there are those who would seek to destroy that to try to cause a famine for hearing the word of the Lord in Christendom, and in many ways have been successful. So who are the enemies in this battle? Well, if I could, it's not so much atheists, it's so-called biblical scholars, often who have attacked the authority, the reliability of scripture, who say that it was just propaganda written uh, and uh, deny uh, the, that they're eyewitness accounts. If you've ever uh, watched any videos of Bart Ehrman, uh, who started out uh, as a professing Christian, but uh, came to doubt scripture, and now actively goes around churches, undermining people's trust in scripture. And there are some people, uh, like Pete Williams, who have taken him on, who through patient and diligent and rigorous and skilled scholarship have answered that. So if you've ever heard Bart Ehrman uh, and have uh, started to doubt scripture, make sure that you listen to the scholars who take their stand uh, against that to ensure, if you like, people's trust in the food supply, the divine food supply of God's word. And then on the question of loyalty, it's interesting, David did not rule again by giving commands. He ruled by inspiring uh, loyalty amongst his army. He had soldiers, he developed, he, wanted, he developed those who wanted to please their commanding officer. It's interesting when Paul is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, shortly before he died, he says to Timothy, I want you to think about this, this picture, that a soldier does not get involved in civilian affairs, but he wants to please his commanding officer. Normally we think of soldiers being trained, they, they just have to obey whatever orders are given, not to think for themselves, but just obey commands. That is instilled in the soldiers of most armies. But 
if we are soldiers for the Lord, we do not be soldiers like that. We are not motivated by commands. Uh, we do not simply obey without thinking. Our motivation should be to please the Lord and to do things without being asked out of loyalty and love for the Lord. That's the sort of heart that the Lord wants to see in us. People who do more than their duty without being told, more than mere obedience, but to please the Lord. And then we get Benaiah. And just thinking of him in the pit in the snowy day, going down to face that lion. There is a constant battle to save God's people from falling into traps, into the trap of the devil. And more generally, the world and the flesh and the devil uh, are threats, constant threats to every Christian and to every church. And often the, the battle against these enemies is fought not just by individuals, but by churches. So for us as a church, we need constantly to be reviewing how we're doing in the battle to protect our membership and society even against the danger from the world, the danger from the flesh, uh, depending on human strength, that is, and, and the threat from the devil. So those are the issues that uh, are raised uh, in the review of David, the young King David's army. Examples of he real heroes in the sight of the Holy Spirit. And then we come to chapter 24, where David counts his fighting men. Now, it's very clear that this was regarded as something really wrong to count the number of fighting men. So the first question we want to ask is, why was it so wrong to count, to do a census of the army? Secondly, why did God bring judgment upon David for this? It seemed quite severe judgment, 70,000 people died. And finally, what was the outcome of God's judgment? So first of all, why was it so wrong? There's no statement that I can find in Scripture against counting your soldiers and counting the people. In the book of Numbers, the Lord told Moses to count the people, and he did that twice. And they are described as fighting men. It's like he was counting the army. He did it at the beginning of the journey through the wilderness and at the end. But even Joab told David, look, this is wrong. He tried to stop David from doing it. And later David admitted that he had sinned, that he had done something really foolish in counting his fighting men. His fighting men. So why was it so foolish? Well, just think of the contrast between chapter 23 and chapter 24. Chapter 23, it talks about, uh, Scripture highlights the importance of individuals in bringing victory. But you notice how many there were, only 37. And look what David achieved with those 37 men. In other words, it's quality, not quantity. Numbers are not the key thing. Numbers in a church are not the important thing. Sometimes people look at mega churches and see, oh, they've got 20,000 in their church, and it makes us feel so ineffective, so insignificant. Numbers are not what we should rely on. And the, the, the writer deliberately juxtaposes the exploits of these 37 men with David taking pleasure, almost gloating over his 1.3 million. 
David had lost, as an old king, had lost sight of how victory is achieved. Now, even Churchill recognized that lesson in his famous speech. Remember, he said, after the Battle of Britain, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. David should have remembered that lesson as he remembered his 37 mighty men. But it seems that David had become proud of the wrong things. He had become uh, reliant on the wrong things, the wrong source of victory and achievement. The second reason why it was so wrong was because David was soon to hand over the throne of Israel to Solomon. And God had said to David about what Solomon would be. He would say he would be a man of peace, that God would give the land peace in Solomon's time. In fact, Solomon's name means peace, like Shalom. Solomon would not need a huge army. Having a huge army would be a danger because other nations would see that as a threat. And David had forgotten the mission of the next generation. He was thinking they would, the next generation would have to fight the same battles that he had. And often churches can make that mistake. Churches, uh, older people in churches sometimes think that young people are going to face the same enemies that they had. But instead of that, the new generation is going to have to have, face other enemies. So David had forgotten uh, God's mission for Solomon. And his uh, reveling in an army of 1.3 million, if God had not judged him, if that had been allowed to uh, continue, then it would have set, stored up disaster for Solomon. So that gives us a hint then into the next question, why did God bring judgment? It does seem strange at the start of this chapter that it says that God incited David to count the people. Does God incite people to do foolish and wrong things? Well, let's look uh, a little more carefully at this, but we do have to address it. First of all, you'll notice it says at the very start of this chapter that God's anger was stirred against Israel, not against David, but Israel had obviously departed from the Lord, and the Lord was angry with the nation. And so he, he needed to speak to the nation to call them back. There were things going on in the nation which had to be sorted out. We're not told what they were, but God did need to step in, and he used David and exploited, if you like, David's pride in his army uh, as a means of bringing judgment on the nation. But he used David actually to save the nation, to deliver them from whatever evil it was they had fallen into. But there's another reason why God had to bring public judgment on what David was doing. What happens when a nation has an army of 1.3 million soldiers and they're proud of it. Well, you feel the need to use it. What's the point in having an army of 1.3 million if you're just going to be sitting around enjoying peacetime? No. What happens, we have seen this in history, you actively start looking for a war. This happened. This was one of the reasons behind the First World War. In the early 1900s, there was like an arms race, a militarization of Europe. 
and it was the military who wanted war to show their strength. Particularly Austria, the head of Aust the Austrian military, a man called Conrad, who is uh, significant responsibility for starting the First World War. But Germany wanted a war. It had an army, it had a navy, it created the navy. They actively wanted war, particularly the military people, not necessarily the politicians, but the military leaders. They wanted war because that's what they were for. That's what they had an army for. If God had judged Europe before the First World War started, think how many lives could have been saved. If God had intervened, and perhaps he did, but they didn't listen, so that the, the nations looked at themselves and said, we're not going to go over the brink. It would have saved millions of lives. Now, that's one reason why God stepped in to judge David at this stage. Because with an army of 1.3 million, if, David, if Solomon had used that army, been driven and persuaded by his military commanders to go to war, many would have been lost. In fact, a few generations later, the king at that time, Abijah, forgot the lesson of David's judgment for his army. And there was a civil war in Israel. And it gives us the numbers. There were 800,000 soldiers from the northern kingdom at that time, the same as in David's census, and 400,000 in Judah. 1.2 million soldiers in Israel fighting each other. And it says there were 500,000 soldiers died in that war. Now, which is better? For God to judge and kill 70,000 in judgment through a plague and stop that war or to allow the war to proceed and lose half a million people. To me, it's, it's a no-brainer. One reason why God stepped in in judgment uh, at the time of David, because it could have led and could likely have led to hundreds of thousands of casualties. Sadly, that lesson was forgotten. And thirdly, another reason why God <clears throat> had to judge David uh, at this stage was because if he hadn't, it would have, David could easily have destroyed the whole plans for Solomon's peaceful reign and destroyed the opportunity for Israel to become uh, like a role model to the nations in wisdom and uh, a role model in how to have peaceful reign in a country. And other nations came and learned from that. Now, lastly, let's just move on to the outcome of this judgment. Because whenever the angel reached Jerusalem and was about to strike down Jerusalem, David saw that. And verse 17 is really important. Here the, the writer is highlighting David's response. As an old king, having faced judgment after his sin, and David says this, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and on my family. Here, David at last has rediscovered his original mission as king. Not to be a military commander of 1.3 million soldiers, but to be a shepherd of God's people. He does not blame the people, even though they were ultimately, uh, they had sinned against God. 
But David takes responsibility. He accepts the blame, and he offers to take the punishment on himself and on his descendants. That is real leadership. And just to make a few final points as we end this series, in a book that is all about leadership, we get this closing picture of a ruler who had many faults, but at last comes back to act as a shepherd, who is prepared to take judgment upon himself on behalf of his sheep. And in that regard, it's tempting to think that David had finally succeeded as a king and as a role model for future kings. But while the book ends with an example of what a real leader should be, look, what should look like, the same book records David's many failings. So David is not quite a role model uh, as a shepherd king. But who is? I mean, does the book just end in despair and say, well, this is what kings should be like. David was the closest he got to, we got to it, but even he failed in many ways. What the Lord told David after he had said, let the punishment fall on me, the Lord told David to make a sacrifice on what became the site of the temple, uh, to make an offering to the Lord. So perhaps this is pointing us to the future and said, David is only an outline, only a shadow of the real king who is going to come, who will be a real shepherd. And what will that real shepherd be like? Well, first of all, the answer was going to be uh, David had said, let the judgment fall on me. As an interim measure, the Lord said, well, offer a sacrifice uh, there on Mount Moriah. But you notice what David said, let the judgment fall on me and on my family. Now, David's family had already suffered the consequences of David's sin. So David is thinking much longer term, the, his uh, descendants. And it was one of David's descendants who came as king and as shepherd, the Lord Jesus. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, the son of David, he sent him as the good shepherd, as the great shepherd. And he lived in this world as a man. And we're told several times that when he saw the people being uh, intimidated, harassed, riven with guilt, exploited by false religion, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And so he came forward. And like David, he took responsibility as the shepherd of humanity. He did not come to blame us. He came to stand before God and say, they are but sheep. I am responsible. And on the cross, the Lord Jesus hung before his father and said, I take responsibility for these people. Let them go. Let the judgment fall on me. And so the judgment fell not on a temporary sacrifice, but on someone from the family of David, on Christ himself. He is the perfect shepherd. It's not a picture of a nice idyllic scene of well-behaved sheep under the eye of a relaxing shepherd, but it's a shepherd who came to deal with our sins at his own cost and who will lead us home to God. Second Samuel ends almost incomplete. 
but it is completed by the New Testament that gives us the fulfillment of the outline that, second, that the whole book of Samuel presents. Let's just close in prayer as we finish. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that these scriptures written many hundreds of years before Christ nevertheless start to sketch out an outline of someone who could be the perfect ruler. And in the Lord Jesus, we see someone who rules not by authority, not by control, but through inspiring loyalty and through taking responsibility for his sheep at his own cost, even bearing the judgment that we deserve. Father, those of us who are Christians, thank you that he is also the shepherd in our lives. The Lord is my shepherd. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you, and we ask that your word would speak to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.